Give it up for him, folks. 50 kilometer parade today, right on. Again, congratulations, Ivan Babakov, national ski I mean, team in Foothills North. Things start to get, you, know, you want to be on a, in a funny place, and this is one of those funny places. And if for another place, and it's not as funny, you think, I mean, why am I in that place? I, I, what I wanted to be was in a funny place, and boom. <laughs> I mean, I'm out of it right now, Dave. Move your hips to your thing. Get off the wall, don't Brooks, if I want to explain it to you, I would. First of all, skis need wet. They gotta have paraffin ironed onto them once in a while. And yep, it's made with bits of real panther. You're going to have to scrape skis. The greatest announcer in the world if you don't count like 30 or 40 other guys. Right. All right, you know, on the Cedar Skier Podcast, we're gonna dive deep into the science. We've done studies, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. That does make sense. Oh, great day. Super bad weather and, you know, a really nice day too. Have a good day. It was a really fun race and... Good race. Uh, skis have worked amazingly. I had no choice but to send it. I'm going to try to keep moving up and doing my best. I mean, it's great working there and great doing what we're doing there and, and, and doing the things we do and as long as we keep doing them. I mean... Some people are like, well, we just want to have fun and those people just want to compete. It's like, no, by... by Right. If, you, if your standard for, uh, and, and it kind of came down, honestly, I, I believe that philosophically, it's like we need to define what success is. It's like the hokey pokey. You put your right foot in, yeah. you take your right foot out, you right. put your right foot in, you shake it all about, of you course. do the hokey pokey to turn yourself around, boom! <laughs> that's what that's all about! Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist. We are broadcasting live on Shovel Lake Public Radio here in Leadville, Colorado. Leadville, 10,000 feet, and oh, here we are. Above all the clouds and below the stars. Oh, oh. Just thought I'd throw that in there for you. We got a great show lined up for you today. Of course, if you are only listening to our broadcast to listen to the Yvonne Bobikov interview, part one, you're going to want to ha- wait for a little bit. Okay, we're, we're not going right into that right away because we played the study, scientific study sound clip, which means we need to talk a little bit scientific study. So today, the plan for the show, we're going to run through an interesting new study just posted on ResearchGate from our boy, Dr. Oyvind Sandbach out of NTNU in Trondheim, Norway. So he posted this study. We're going to talk about that just a little bit. It won't be long, you know, but then, of course, we got Ivan Babikov joining us later in the show, and uh, we're going to have him for a two-part special. So this is part one. You're definitely going to hear the inspirational story behind um, the Olympian, three-time Olympian, I I believe, uh, once for... No, hold on. He did not compete. I got to check this now. Wait. Ralph, get on the fact-checking machine right away. Ivan Bobikov, he he competed. We knew he was Russian-born and competed for Canada. What I wasn't really sure about is did his World Cup career was from 2006 to 2016. So I wasn't sure if he competed in an Olympic Games for Russia. That's why it was three Olympics, 2006, 2010, 2014. Uh, so do we know, do we have any indication uh, where, who is, uh, it says without Canadian, this is Wikipedia, 
Thank you, Ralph, for forwarding me that information. Without Canadian citizenship, however, he chose to return to Russia, was selected to compete for that country at the 2006 Olympic Winter Games. Of course, we're we're moving way ahead. Like this story, and you're going to hear the beginnings of it, the fact that he competed in 06 in the Olympics for Russia uh, after immigrating to Canada in the spring of 2003 is just insane. You know, I, I mean, we love fairy tale stories. And this is probably the most ultimate fairy tale story of them all in, in professional skiing. It's kind of inspired me to not give up the Olympic dream, which I think could be damaging to uh, other areas of my life. Uh, but we'll just let's put that on pause, okay? Um, anyway, let's dive in, okay, to topic number one. That is this research posted August 12th. Or I should say, not posted, it's not Facebook, right? It's published August 12, 2020, an original research article. The title is Development of Performance, Physiological, and Technical Capacities During a Six-Month Cross-Country Skiing Talent Transfer Program in Endurance Athletes. So basically, the purpose of this study is to examine the development of performance, physiological, and technical capacities, as well as the effect of sport background among runners, kayakers, and rowers when transferred to cross-country skiing over a six-month period. So it's a systematic way uh, that, these, that, that we looked at what would happen if we took elite runners, elite rowers, elite kayakers, and put them on a six-month training program, cross-country skiing, uh, where would they be performance-wise? What would happen to them physiologically? And what would happen to their technical capacities in the sport of cross-country skiing? Very fascinating, I think, because obviously the the majority of, um, I, I should say, loppet skiers, uh, well, just recreational cross-country skiers, often skiing is not the first sport that they are brought up in. Um, they might come to skiing from other backgrounds. And a lot of skiers, I think, even especially in the United States, I, I, this is different in Europe, but you know, in the United States, you have a good runner who uh, runs cross-country and maybe gets pulled into Nordic skiing to train in the winter because there's snow on the ground for five or six months of the year every year anyway. Um, so they cross train in skiing. Maybe they figure out they like that sport more and they compete in college. Uh, there's some dual sport athletes, right? We've had some on the show. Uh, but, but I think just in general, that idea of coming to skiing later in life is, is very relatable for, for the majority of our audience. So I found it interesting that here's a study that really was the first of its kind to sort of lay out I guess what they would call a framework to monitor this sort of talent transfer. So the people in this study, uh, I should mention, well, I'm not gonna be able to say any of their names practically. I'm so sorry. But but I think the important part to mention is we've got some uh, sports researchers from Norway. We also have uh, scientists connected to the School of Physical Education and Sport Training, Shanghai University of Sport, Shanghai, China, as well as uh, that that person on the bibliography also holds a title with the Olympic Games Preparation Office, Chinese Olympic Committee, Beijing, China. The reason I think that's important is there's some legitimacy to this study because we've got, uh, you know, Oyvind on there, right? He's he's one of the foremost of his in, in his field, but but also because the population that this study takes from are 
elite athletes from China. And so it, it talks about this when describing the participants. It, it consists of 24 young Chinese talent transfer athletes. They have background in summer endurance sports. And basically, it says all athletes were selected from the group of the second best athletes in their respective sports in China. They had trained professionally for the sport for several years. Therefore, they were given the opportunity to transfer from their summer sport to cross-country skiing while aiming for participation in the Beijing 2022 Olympic Games. That's crazy. I just, I read that and I thought, that's nuts, right? Like what? I mean, I guess we kind of see that a little bit in American triathlon, but not, not in as bold. And certainly we, we're never doing studies because in the U.S. we just don't have that. Unfortunately, we don't have the relationship between sports science and national governing bodies to, um, to really like sync that up. So we are researching the top athletes, but we, we see that in triathlon here where we have collegiate runners who are not going to make it in the pro running circuit, but they're still very good. We're talking like 1350s in the 5k, you know? And so you can apply for that program out of college. And that's, that's sort of our way of trying to bolster triathlon is let's, let's, let's poach from NCAA division one running and track ranks. Uh, these athletes who are kind of tier two, of course, that's not going to happen once our NCAA track really crumbles after what we're seeing in, in NCA sport and the cutting of all those programs. But that's another story for another day. Check out the last podcast if you missed that. Um, so that that's the closest we see that. I thought this was pretty bold. It's like, wow, the Winter Olympics are not far away. Uh, 2022, right? Like we are, what, 18 months from that? So <laughs> let's throw some let's throw some really, really fit runners, kayakers, rowers on skis and see if we can get them ready for the Olympics in our home country. I don't know. It just, it seemed weird when I was reading that at first, but that was the first thing that caught me um, off guard. So I bet you're wondering what happened, right? Like, well, maybe you're, maybe if if you're smart, you're probably wondering what exactly this design, the design of the study looked like. So just a brief overview, six months. Okay. They had an initial testing period. Um, Oh, actually before that, an initial about two-month introduction to roller skiing in China, okay? Um, and that's just to get them a little bit used to that. And then it says they measured them three different times during the six-month training period. Uh, we recorded detailed descriptions of the athlete's training. So we had a pre-test baseline performed initially. This is November 2018. I guess this is a while ago then, right? They're getting them ready for 2022. It started four years ago. My bad. Uh November 2018, mid-test in February 2019, post-test in May 2019. The entire battery of tests took place over a five-day period, including three days of testing for each athlete with two days of easy training in between, right? So basically, at each of these three points of, they had six months, tested the beginning baseline over the course of five days, then tested again midway through, and then tested at the end. Of course, they were given these training programs too, and they're pretty extensive. The tables on this test uh, show show just exactly what was included in the training. It was basically two a day cross country skiing. You know, uh, typical training week consists of two daily training sessions. They did have a third session uh, conducted in the morning where they were just working on skiing drills, thirty minute focus, uh, balance coordination, all that stuff. Uh, and then they include the total training time. You can look at that closer if you want to see like the mode. Uh, the intensity zone, right? But it was essentially modeled after an elite, uh, an elite cross-country skiing program. Um, I wanted to see if they cited exactly where they 
where they took this whole training. All training data were registered and systematized by Norwegian coaches and researchers contributing to this project. So they followed the Norwegian plan, right? Probably the same book I've got in my back with uh, Spiral Bounds from 1989, right? Nothing's changed. Okay, so then uh, they talk about the tests, too. The tests were basically they tested him on the treadmill running. They tested two upper body strength tests was the seated pull down and the triceps press. We're including those in our study as well. Well, seated pull down. I don't think we'll do triceps test. Um, so the battery of upper body, just two tests, a treadmill roller ski skating test, and a double pulling ergometer using the ski erg out of Vermont, the concept. We reviewed that on our website, by the way. You can check that out. So they did a 30-second wind gate and a five-minute self-paced performance test for those. Okay, then they analyzed them, and here we go. Let's get on to the results. Um, the main, oh, I guess, you know, in my, in my program notes, yeah, I, I do prepare for the show slightly, not, not a lot. I probably do just turn on my mic too much, but the, I said, look at table two. So table two kind of talks about the training days, rest days, distribution of each. There were 145 training days for this six week program. 83% of the days were spent training, 22% resting, that's 13%, um, 13% rest days total training hours was 352 hours plus or minus 20 uh 297 sessions so like i said 145 days of training 297 you're looking at almost doubling up every single day uh training forms the percentage distribution endurance was 75 percent. 11 percent was on strength four wait these numbers don't add up do they 11 percent strength four percent speed uh hold up 84 percent 84%, 12%, and 4% adds up. So 84% endurance, 12% strength, 4% speed. And then it talks about the intensity, uh, low, medium, and high, 86% low, 5% medium, 9% high. Then the mode, running, was 30% of the training. Ski skating, 39%. Classic skiing, 24%. Roller ski skating, 3%. Roller skiing, classic, 4 Oh, I didn't really realize. I, I just noticed that now that... Uh, it was actually ski skating versus roller ski skating, and most of this was actually on on skis, it appears. Interesting, because um, I was thinking that, that this was taking place, for whatever reason, I, I just, well, the tests are all on roller skis, so this will be a new discussion point. So the most of their training took place on rollers, where at, or I'm sorry, on snow, but their tests were on a roller ski treadmill. Okay. So then we got a huge table three is a good one to look at. If you like to pour over the numbers and see just exactly how all of these physiological variables and performance variables and even uh, proficiency, right, uh, changed, definitely want to check out those tables. Or you can be a little bit lazier like me and skip to the discussion where they're going to present the main findings. So the main findings in this study were that one, the performance in roller ski skating improved by 13%, but a larger improvement was seen in runners compared to kayakers and rowers. So 16% improvement in runners, 9% in uh, rowers and kayakers. That's in the roller ski skating test. Uh, running performance did not change. Okay, I will say, however, in the discussion, they bring up that the runners had a moderate effect size for change in running performance even so they actually improved in running average number two average power output during the five minute and 30 minute 30 second ski erg double pulling test improved by eight percent and five percent 
Okay, 8% improvement in the five minute, 5% improvement in the 30 second on the ski erg. The improvement on the 30 second test revealed only among runners, though. So it's 30 second test. Here's the improvement runners improved 8% on the 30 second erg, negative 2% in kayakers and rowers. I think that's interesting um, that they would get worse. Number three, VO2 max in running and VO2 peak double pulling did not change either in all athletes pooled or in any of the groups, whereas VO2 peak in treadmill roller ski skating improved 5% in runners. That was significantly greater than the unchanged values in kayakers and rowers. Okay, so um, when you're looking at basically what that's saying right there, in roller ski skating, the, the economy... Well, no, sorry. The VO2 peak is what's changed. VO2 peak, VO2 peak, VO2 peak in roller ski skating improved 5% runners, nothing in the kayakers rowers. So I think the first topic to kind of address here are general changes versus sport specific capacity changes. Okay, and they introduced this as saying, yeah, here's what, here's main, the main thing we did, though, is, is even though we've seen this transfer between sports and the elite level, this is the first time we have systematic documentation. And that's important because they're kind of saying, like, hey, if we want, we need to provide a framework for this long term monitoring of, of training. Uh, and not, that's not just so we can see how transfer athletes work. It also would be good to see over the long haul how cross country skiers may improve in some of these categories as well. So that's kind of their, they laid out the, the point of what the study was, was really all about. Um, and they talk a little bit about how runners have the greatest improvement. Okay. And so I think that's a little bit of a takeaway potentially, right? In transferring to cross country skiing, for whatever reason, and they give some runners um, improved the most in really everything. Which is interesting because you would you would think runners coming in with a probably a larger aerobic foundation, you would think that'd be at least one area where they wouldn't improve. But what the article kind of seems to suggest is they are um, they have they're the highest responders to this type of training because they've done it the most. So they're they are they have a high endurance adaptation capability compared to kayakers and and they and really cross-country ski training is going to fit them better because it includes a fair amount of running and that's what they showed here as well they also mentioned how in classic skiing that 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 motion is closer to running than it is to rowing uh rowers are a little larger they're not as uh durable in terms of holding up to resisting injury when when you're adding running so there was a few only a five percent uh decrease in compliance with training with the, with the training mode than runners were the kayakers and rowers. In other words, they got hurt doing stuff. They missed out on about 5% of that training. So it wasn't a huge number, but they tried to kind of say, Hey, maybe that's why the kayakers didn't improve. But just in general, they mentioned they just have a lower tolerance for high loads of endurance training. So they did not respond to the training quite as much as runners did. So I'm going to skip down here to paragraph three in the discussion. It mentions that the aerobic energy delivery capacities, in other words, VO2 peak, VO2 max, uh, they didn't change significantly in either of the exercise modes. And they, they said this, we didn't really expect this or this we did. We could have expected this in running because they're already very endurance trained, but was was unexpected in the more sports specific modes, such as roller skiing and double pulling ergometry or erg was what was that we saw that. So, in other words, um, they had 
surprisingly high VO2 peak to VO2 max ratios at baseline in roller ski skating and double polling. So even though they're not good skiers, they're... Uh, aerobic energy delivery capacities in skiing is pretty high. And, and their, their conclusion is, well, that would indicate that we have a limited potential for improving VO2 peak to VO2 max uh, in these runners. Okay. Which they were kind of thinking, Hey, they're, they're, that ratio is probably really good in running, which it was because they're elite runners, but they can't ski. So that's going to be probably terrible in skiing. Well, it turns out it wasn't. And so this is important because, and what they say is that the design of the test was allowed for this. So, so they could reach high max physiological values without being limited by their technical experience. And yet we saw improvement in performance in roller ski skating and double pulling. So where did that come from? And they explained that that came from improved technique. And we saw this massive cycle length efficiency or improvements in efficiency. Um, and so that that's something to think about as, as a coach, too, as you deal with athletes coming from maybe running to skiing is don't don't worry too much about improving the skiing VO2 peak to VO2 max ratio. They're not going to need that. They are like where they're going to be limited is in their technique. So that might seem really obvious, but, but I think as you get a skier who maybe improves a lot on roller skis, let's say you're, you're, or you're, you're even skiing, whatever method you're training, does that, does that athlete, especially, man, like a 16, 17-year-old, maybe he's coming fresh off a of cross-country running. He's done a lot of intervals, a lot of VO2 max type workouts. Does that athlete need to have as many VO2 max workouts to elicit the highest performance physiologically in that variable on skis? No. They're, they're already at the peak there, so don't worry. And, and that is, I wouldn't have expected that. I kind of would have thought that, hey, sports specificity is going to rule out here, so... Even with those runners, we, we do need to make sure they they go through the same L4 skate skating workouts, the same L4 double pulling workouts. And this isn't to say like, well, this study says we need to ignore that, but it does point to an ability, a transfer that that I think is somewhat unexpected. And I think coaches would do well to maybe consider that. Okay. Um, and then it, it talks a little bit more. Let's see. Cycle lengths improved a lot. There was large improvement in one rep max upper body strength. Not surprising there. Um, but especially runners, right? They're going to have weak upper bodies. Uh, and, and then, then uh, it talks about... Oh. The submax... Oh, the last paragraph. I got a little bit lost here, but... Basically, uh, it says, following the improved skiing efficiency that occurred to the greatest extent from mid-post, lower physiological and perceptual costs, so heart rate, uh, RER, blood lactate values, RPE, were found when athletes were compared to the same absolute submax speed and power outputs of 4 uh, mmol per liter increased. This indicates that the submax stages were less demanding and that sports-specific indices of anaerobic threshold while treadmill roller ski skating were improved following the training period. The reason for these submax adaptations, in other words, runners are getting better at going at submax, right? They're more efficient. It's not known, but could imply that a longer time frame is required to develop skiing efficiency 
and subsequently induce these adaptations. The athletes showed a significantly higher RPE, heart rate, and blood lactate values during the sports-specific max tests at post-test, so at the end. And they say that's most likely brought about by improved ability to push themselves and increase effort in a new exercise mode. I think we've probably experienced that. I know I have when I first started roller skiing just a few years ago. It was pretty frustrating because I was in excellent shape from a running standpoint. and I really could not get myself to uh, even go above like an L2 on roller skis just because I was so bad at it. <laughs> so there's a lot of people I think who are at that. I feel like I'm probably still at that on skis to some degree. Uh, but, but once you get comfortable and you can actually push yourself, it's pretty fun to see how you can uh, do the similar types of workouts in a different exercise mode. That's, that's what we should all be striving for, whether we're a master's athlete or a new athlete, is improving our technical abilities, our balance, our form, all of those things so that we can exercise in, a, in this different mode at, at all the different intensities that we want to. And, and athletes who are injured, maybe they can't run anymore. Maybe they have had knee problems or running is just, it's, it's not possible. Maybe that's where they live, but, but maybe it's also just being older. And, and developing skills on skis, this, this maybe gives us hope that it can happen fast and you can get to that point. So I think another surprising thing here, I guess we touched on it briefly, but just that difference between runners and kayakers and rowers. So the other final statement here, it's backed up by the evidence, is essentially these athletes from an endurance sport that is more upper body driven did not transfer to skiing as well as the runners. Um, kind of crazy, I think, especially in today's day and age where skiers typically have more upper body power and strength than they did 30 or 40 years ago. This study would have been a, an obvious guess you know, the results would have been pretty predictable. I think in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you would have just been like, well, obviously, you know, the sport looked more like running back then, and so did the athletes. But I would have thought that rowers would have taken to this better. And this isn't to say that if you have a rowing background, you cannot make that transition or leap to skiing. But I do almost think it's probably easier to go the other way, to go from skiing to rowing. Um, so maybe it is just the technical aspect was not brought about as much by kayakers, rowers, and, and most of the lower body technique is the hard part about skiing. That's the limiting thing. That's where cycle length, obviously cycle length is obviously determined by your upper body power too, the, the ability to, for to produce the propulsion, but if you can't balance on that one ski, uh, you're, it doesn't matter how much power you're bringing out in the upper body. And so maybe there's something there where runners, because their sport mode deals with the lower body a lot, they were able to improve just their technical balance. I mean, their, their cycle length improved more, right? It was 16 to 9%. Uh, percent. So they did, they did show that the, the data backs up my claim there. But I wonder if that's something worth kind of looking into as we think about transferring to skiing from another sport is what's the what's how's the lower body activated in their other sport? Like I would I would guess in high school, even I'd rather take a soccer player, a midfielder, you know, a female, a 14 year old female midfielder. Like I bet they could be a phenomenal skier. They're going to have tremendous balance footwork, also going to have a lot of endurance change of pace soccer you have to have long distance endurance plus the short burst of speed it kind of is the same supra aerobic supra anaerobic burst that that uh, Losniger uh, and other researchers Lindiger Lind 
can't say their names. Doesn't matter. You don't care. 110 to 160% of VO2 peak, VO2 max, that occurs in races and cross-country skiing where athletes will periodically have bursts way above that and then recover. A soccer player, it's a similar game, right, where they are going way above then coming way down and having to endure long stretches of time. But but more so than that, on to this point is they're going to be able to balance and they're going to be able to um, adapt to that technique that requires balance quicker than someone who's maybe into bowling or um, chess. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, it'd be, it'd be fun to have to do a whole show on which athletes would transfer the best. I have said on the male side, the decathlete, is the ideal cross-country skier in terms of body, demeanor, training, physiology, everything. I don't know if that's true on the female side. I, I kind of don't think so. Um, I think there's probably other sports there, and, and female cross-country skiing is just different than male cross-country skiing. But anyway, that was that study. Found it interesting. When it popped into my feed, I thought I'd better review this because uh, – it would be important and interesting to some people. So I hope it was. Uh, but now we're going to, after the break here, transition to our second part of the show, which is a discussion with the great Ivan Bobikov. Stay with us. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast. Everybody know who I am. You told me it was good, but I didn't realize it was <laughs> that good. <laughs> I love it. We're back on the Cedar Skier Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Cedarquist, broadcasting live from Leadville, Colorado, the cloud city, 10,000 feet, the highest city in America. And here is your weather for the week. Winter's not here yet. 55 degrees and sunny every day for the next 10 days. But then it's going to cool off. It's going to get down to 47 on the next whatever day that is, 46, 45. We're not good at this. But we got Eva Mabikov on the show with us. He's joining us in an exclusive interview up next. All right. So we are talking with Ivan Babikov now, the moment you've all been waiting for, joining us all the way from Canada, other side of the globe, right? Another country, our neighbors to the north, Ivan Babikov. I hope you enjoy part one of our interview. Well, so Ivan, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. And you have a fascinating story, you know, broadly speaking, in terms of overcoming the odds, reaching high levels of performance in a sport where really if the cards are stacked against you, it's particularly hard to succeed, I I would think. And you also have a connection to the factory ski team, and that is the primary reason we've got you on here. So we just want to talk about your experience, memories, and the connection with the team Uh, first we got to go back a little bit. And for those people who haven't followed the sport quite as long, they might not know about your history. Can you sort of um, catch us up on that? Uh, I just sort of briefly am bringing the knowledge that I know you immigrated to Canada in the spring of 2003 at the age of 23. And according to like my, the sources I'd looked up, it said you initially didn't really have intentions of skiing after your career had, quote, you know, stalled in Russia. But yeah, catch us up to how you uh, answer some of those questions of, of your background and your history. Um, hello, first of all. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, man. It, 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 it's great when you, when you send me these questions. It actually brought up some, some great memories about factory team. And, uh, and that's why I thought it would be great to share all of what I, what I lived through and all my, my experiences. But, uh, yeah, to start, so I was born in the northern part of Russia. 
I can mention, I, I think I could mention the name, but it's not going to tell much because Russia is so huge and people, most, 100% of the time, they're like, what, where, where is this? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's really north, really small village, uh, lots of snow, lots of uh, forestry and, and everything. So when, uh, I started skiing there with a, with, a, with a local ski club or ski school, how it's called in Russia. And uh, yeah, so I lived. Uh, I lived in, in that small village for until I was, I think, 14, then moved to close by city, uh, finished the high school there. Um, then I moved to the um, capital of, of the region, or republic, how we call it, or like the province. <laughs> and then I went to university there, and uh, from there, <clears throat> after I finished university, so I immigrated to Canada following my, my sister and her, her family. Um, so that's kind of a long story short. I don't know how, how deep in details you want to yeah. get. Um, so you went, how did you kind of get started with skiing more professionally for Russia as a nation then? Um, you know, was that during your time at university or like right after or even before then? When were you sort of spotted as a, a, a talent? Uh, I, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was on the, on the provincial level, maybe. You know, so when I, like I said, I, I was born in Fall Village and I was this shorter guy, like out of my group and class and, and uh, my age group, let's say, right? So I had to work double hard to kind of compete with those guys, but I was always agile and I really loved to play soccer. So that's the, the reason why I joined skiing, actually, is that I saw that the school pro- or the ski program in summer they were playing a bunch of sports and playing soccer a lot so and i i was like for a couple of years i was just joining just because of that i was i joined the program i play soccer in the summer and whatever do whatever they're doing but just to just to get to the soccer part yeah you <laughs> can play the ball and for the winter i'm like okay bye see you in the summer again <laughs> you know so for right. a couple of years when i was little i did that and then i kind of kind of tried skiing and they stuck with me and and uh, after that it uh, kind of went went up and so um so didn't have great results like i said when i was like from until like 14 then when i moved to the city i joined a so different program different coach i bit more serious a bit more uh, more specific to skiing and uh, started doing like on the regional level not even regional just uh, kind of yeah regional i guess and uh, doing a little bit better, but still uh, the shortest didn't grow for uh, didn't develop for for until I probably was seventeen or something. So when I went to university, I joined different another program in in the capital, and and uh, that was already full on skiing. And I was I remember my my the only experience or memories from that I was just sore all the time, like and I was tired all the time because the training load was so so high and. And it was no joking around. So right. I tried to survive. And so in university, yes, I was racing for university and kind of more already um, national level. So I went to the Russian championship. And I think um, my best result, I was probably like, um, I don't know, 14th or 15th in, in the Russian junior championship. So that was my best. So like, like if, you, if, you, if you can tell, it's not enough to be to be on a, a Russian junior team or anything so so that's why that's why i mean i mean i wasn't really <laughs> uh spotted sure. as a talent or anything in russia sure. so, so that's why nothing was holding me back when uh, so my sister immigrated in 2000 with her husband and started started her life in toronto um so and that three years later so she started sponsorship process and it took three years and then after that my mom and myself, we after I finished university in 2003, that's why we moved, uh, and I moved to Toronto with, with them, yeah, for a while. 
so and like you you write you write or the sources right i think i mentioned that in a few interviews that when i moved to canada like i wasn't sure what i what i'll be doing because new life new culture new place and and uh by that time i already had a son um he was just born in russia and my wife in, back in russia so kind of i my i focused on the uh, trying to get work and, and, and getting some money and sending some money back home. And, and, uh, and yeah, that's, so that was my main goal at the first few months when I moved. Wow, interesting. Okay, so, um, and, and I know, yeah, you're kind of a late bloomer, undersized maybe for a skier by, like, traditional, you know, terms, how that goes, I guess. But, like, you know, you proved everyone wrong. You made it, you made it happen. But I'm kind of curious, like, at what point did you think the Olympics was maybe a possibility or pro skiing on the World Cup was a possibility? Because like you said, if at 17, oh. 18, 19, you were 14th in the, in the nationals, like, did you ever think at that time, like, hey, my dream is to be a pro skier? Or were you just, were you, was that not even in the, in the ballpark? Like, when did that kind of come to you as like, I'm going to go for it? You know what? I I don't think I ever had that moment. Like I, yeah. I always the kind of person that I like. I of course I dreamt of. I remember watching on TV, and of course the dream was uh, when I was racing for university and like in junior time. Like I was, I was of course dream was to make the national team, Russian national team, and there was a there was a big. Uh, it was quite prestigious, and and to be at the race at the World Cup. But I I didn't even dare to think that's gonna be true because it was so far away. I just yeah. kept my head down, kind of, and and worked my and like I said, when I moved, it everything changed. So I I did like when I moved, I did uh, my 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 mom helped me actually because her English she she was the English teacher at school, so my English wasn't great. So she actually helped me to get some connections and to find the local clubs. That's how I found actually uh, xc.com. So that okay. was the, the one and only, I think, ever in Canada. Yeah. Uh, it's like really similar to factory teams. So that was the time when it's all kind of coming up. So it's like a professional team, let's say. And uh, so that's how, like, and and so <laughs> that's how I kind of, it was my kind of option to get back in skiing. You know, I was living in Toronto in the summer, like up to 2003 and working full time or, or kind of even more than full time and trying to make money and, and support my family at home and, and then, so in the fall, I, I moved to Kenmore to meet Phil uh, Vilnius. So he was running that XE.com team. And so he, they kind of, he took me pretty much <laughs> under his wing and like I, I uh, let me, let me crash in his basement and like uh, maybe he just talked to him sometimes because his memories of like I showed up at his doorstep with just with one backpack with ripped shoes and like <laughs> wow. that much, that much uh, like on me, you know, and he's like, okay, here I am, <laughs> you know, it's like, great. And uh, so that whole thing, I didn't know how it was going to start because, like I said, I barely trained in the summer, like between trying to work, like in Toronto, just running or whatever I could find. And and uh, Toronto is not the best place for, for ski training, if you if you can imagine. Right. And uh, so the time time when the first competition come, I think it was in Quebec, and and um, so I I. I raced, or maybe it was BC, I'm not sure, maybe it was the British Columbia. Anyway, so the first uh, Canada Cup or Noram, I'm not sure what, what, what was it. Yeah. Um, I raced and I, was, I placed second. And I'm like, oh, that's, 
that's good. Maybe maybe I keep I should keep doing this, you know. So that was kind of a okay. light bulb. I'm like, okay, maybe so like so the option or the kind of backup plan turned into like main plan. So I started chasing <laughs> all of the races and racing for com and racing all like whatever there was in the circuit, and I was yeah. winning most of it and or like always in top three and and still kind of developing and trying to and but after some time after a couple months when I like started counting my my expenses and my winnings like I realized I didn't make any actually I was it maybe because of the travel was expensive or yeah. the housing and everything stuff so so that's when like I talked to Phil and I'm like it's like I, I don't think I can I can afford doing this <laughs> because um, um look I'm winning most of it and still it's still not even close to kind of support right. myself and, and my family and so he's just like well I this is how North America is <laughs> yeah point at least Canadian part right you can't make much money so that's one like I, I hear sometimes sometimes people ask me so why did you move from from Russia to to Canada like to to is that because of the money to make more money <laughs> that's not even a question it's better than close to what you can yeah. uh, make as an athlete in, in Europe or in Russia you know and right. and versus here right so so um and then he, so that's when he kind of I'm sorry I'm just taking a long route <laughs> towards the uh, factory team. So that's when he pitched it, like, well, I hear, like, in States, money is much better for the price money. And, uh, like, there is a factory team, and he knew Andy somehow. So so they connected, and they started from there. They started sharing me pretty much. <laughs> so I, when I was in States, I raced for a factory team, and, like, we explained the situation. Hey, like, <laughs> yeah. there's a guy from Russia, and he barely speaks English, or I just... Started. So that was another actually shock that I maybe didn't mention when I show up at school's door. Like I could barely, like I I had university English and like high school English, and I right. I could understand most of it, but I was still fear of like speaking and may, maybe saying something wrong and being like you know. And so it was that that kind of barrier as well. Like and it was a, a bit of a cultural shock as well uh, here. But anyway, so all of that over, uh, overcome, and uh, so I'm racing in states. Also, same thing, chasing, chasing all of the lawpits, all of the super tours, just trying to, uh, trying to get some, some, some dollars and, and make some dollars and send some home and, and uh, support myself as well. So this is super interesting because um, I'm, I'm aware, well, very new to the sport, really. Like, but I coached last year and a, a website that I really relied on in just learning how to teach kind of every ability and learn about the techniques was xcski.com and obviously you are like the model athlete that they have in all their videos so this is like cool to hear how you came about doing that because my assumption would have just been well he's the most accomplished canadian athlete and this is kind of you know a website put together by canadian coaches so that makes sense but like it's really interesting to hear that just the truth of how you came to it and uh, you kind of answered the question, I guess, of when you sort of made that turn of like, this was a backup plan, but wow, I'm, I'm actually pretty decent. Like maybe I should make this my primary plan. So was it ever hard coming to Toronto and thinking, I gotta, I gotta make some money. I gotta send money back home. I've got a kid, I've got a wife. And then like, you're sort of just training. Cause well, I used to do this. Like, did you have moments in that stage before you got that second place where you were like, man, what am I doing here? Like, what am I doing on skis? You know, and like, or, or looking back, you kind of go, wow, it was, it was, I'm really lucky that I got that, that race result kind of early. And I was like, huh, 
I, sh- I, I shouldn't give up on this. Or, you know what I mean? I guess, do you understand what I'm asking? Where it's like, because yep. sports is, requires such mm. a serious dedication that it is kind of amazing that you held on to it sort of just as a side thing, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, explain yeah. explain that, I, I, I guess. Yeah, I'll try for sure. Um, I think what, what saved me or what, what kind of helped me go through that period, I think it's just because all of the years of being an athlete in Russia and just the, the, the mentality of, of, uh, of our sport, you know, how like you have to commit, you have to give everything to the sport, right? And the university to university was a great time. And I was going to school, but also there was like full-time training also and representing it, my province and, and, the, and the region and university anyway. So I think that's what kind of got me through that period. I never kind of... I don't think I, I, at least I don't remember doubting myself or second, second thoughts like, or like, why am I doing this? You know, like I, I remember it was extremely hard. I was working like night shifts that where I could make most, most of the money and I were, and kind of, so working from, I think from nine till like, uh, six in the morning or something from the whole night. And then I come back a couple hours, I got up and go for training, you know, and I did that for, I remember for a couple of weeks and then like my body just crashed. Like I had no energy left after that. I'm like, okay, I have to rethink that, like, or take a little bit less hours or maybe don't work through the night or something like that. So, so it was extremely hard. And, but I never thought of like, okay, I have to start training. It just, it was like that, automation you know when you i did it for already 10 years plus and i'm like it just it just was part of my nature that's how who i was like i had to i have to train i had that you know the high level athlete is the only bit addicted to the sport and to that to the low to the training load to to all of it you know so it's it's really hard to just stop oh yeah (laughs) i i agree uh, with that for sure for so sure. I, I remember. I remember just like early skiing through some neighborhoods in Toronto, and some of the some of the guys and like you know grew like some not gangs, but just a, just a group of kids or some adults too. You could be like, whoa, what are those? <laughs> yeah. hey, you crazy man. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yep. <laughs> that, that was, of course, so you can tell like this is I didn't belong like that early skiing. In Toronto, especially in 2003, like people didn't know what it is. Yep. <laughs> but like I said, I never thought about it. I never thought like, okay, I should stop, like, and just focus on working. And I, because I, I still, I still had that option as like one of the main ones, I guess. Yeah. But okay. If you think about it, okay. It just it was my nature. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that for sure. In terms, I mean, even I mean, I, I was a serious athlete in college, and and so dedicated to the point where, like you said, you're addicted to it. Like even if you weren't thinking introspectively about why you're doing something, it's like just giving up the activity yeah. would be extremely difficult. Um, I, and I, and I'm curious then, you know, how introspective you were in those stages, like. Um, because I know even for me, you know, the last 10 years, like the reason I've continued training and tried to be serious about it, athletics, the goal has kind of like changed or morphed. And there's still kind of this end goal of like, ultimately, I just want to be the very best I can be and find out what that is. And so for you, was there like, was that kind of, you know, maybe you didn't think about it that deeply, or maybe you did, but if you did, like, was that the end goal or was there still like this kind of, Hey, I'm going to keep putting putting my head down, working hard, maybe I can make it, you know, or, or, or do you actually look back and go, wow, I think I was literally just training. Cause that's all I knew. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Yeah, I think maybe a little bit of both. Like I, like I said, I just, that was, that was 
that's what I did, you know, that I didn't know any better, you know, yep. and if I had a, like, starting all over at something, especially in new place, maybe it was, a, <laughs> maybe it was, like, I remember there was this, like, in 2003, before MLS uh, uh, blew up, the major soccer league, you know, I remember, like, just biking through Toronto to work, and I see the sign, like, uh, Toronto, um, uh, oh, what's the, what's the team name, um, uh, Oh, the Raptors or Toronto? Which, uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, uh, soccer team. Yeah, no, it's not Raptors. It's basketball. It's, yeah, Raptors basketball. So, oh yeah, you said soccer. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so and they were having tryouts, and like I have soccer is my fashion. I still play in the local, local league, and I played through all my career, like in the in the local league. I, it, like I said, it, it it was for my soul, you know. So yeah. like thinking now and back, I'm like maybe I should have. And there were seven tryouts, and like. Uh, yeah, I was a bit too old, brother. Like twenty-three is probably not the time. But I was I was playing soccer in Russia till I was fourteen, ten, and in the club too. And then I, when I started doing skiing, I kind of had to choose one one sport. But anyway, so like thinking back, I'm like maybe I should have because back then it was quite low league, right? Quite low level, and I'm like maybe I should have tried that. Maybe it would have been different path, right? But I kind of I kind of because of the language barrier and I was kind of scared a bit. I just stuck to what was most uh, comfortable to me, and, and that was skiing. That was training, that was because I could be on my own somewhere in, like, in the yeah. woods or in the park and, and just working hard and, 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 and going through something that I know the best in a new place, new country, new culture, you know? Does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense, and I, I get you, and it's like roller skiing. Even here now, well, when I used to live in Alamosa, it was, it's a little bit poor community and just not access to, like, a lot of sports, but especially one like skiing. So you're roller skiing down the road. It's like, what is going on? I can imagine Toronto 2003 that, yeah, you would have gotten. So, well, thank you for answering uh, those questions. I, I'm, it's, that was really helpful to understand kind of more so your, your path to ultimately getting, you know, the factory team and actually, Oh, one more that kind of, this might kind of, you know, throw us into that next section too, where you're, where you had the, the citizenship and you actually competed for Russia at the first Olympics, right? In 2006, you were, you competed for them. That's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another crazy story, but yeah, no. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, we might have to. I wanted to. I wanted to ask you though, if like when you when you that kind of the first race you broke through and you like winning everything, were you ever thinking like, oh man, like skiing skiers here just must not be as good, or did you feel like you had made this improvement? Like, were you ever in the back of your mind thinking, why couldn't I? Why wasn't I like winning all these races in Europe, and now here I am? Or what are your what were your thoughts kind of initially there? Like, you know, and, or and did people kind of go, oh well, yeah, he's from Russia, and now he's coming and kind of dominating? You know, sometimes like people will will demean other athletes if they come from um, Kenya and they they dominate an NCAA cross country or something like that, but. Yeah, yeah. What were your thoughts after right then? Um, you know, again, I didn't like. I'm kind of person that I never, uh, you know, like brag about things, or I, I hate that kind of stuff. You know, so sure. I never thought about like, oh, they must be slow, or like, or that be better, or like everything was just kind of aligning. I remember the first uh, like national team also based in Canmore, right? So and that's where I moved and stayed with Phil. And I remember joining one of their time trials and. Like I said, I had no equipment. Whatever feel like the XC.com provided me or gave me, like that, that's all I had. And I remember, like the the rock skis, he just he just gave me some really. I think it was 
Uh, Elon, Elon, you know, they, they, I don't know if you know that the company. Anyway, so it's, <laughs> it doesn't say much. So anyway, so I, and I had those skis for the, for, <laughs> on the first snow, so, because that's when we use, like, rock skis, we call them, so not to, not to damage good skis, right? So, and I, I joined their, their time trial, and I get my, my ass kicked. Like, I, I was, like, somewhere, I don't know, I think I was, maybe it was second last out of but well it's a national team it's still high level right it's canadian national team but then i'm right. like oh my god like it's, it's, it's tough they still they quite fast and and uh, but i didn't realize that my skis were so bad that, that day maybe so and then two weeks literally two weeks after that when i went to canada cup with the same people i beat all of them and on the on the race skis on the on the on, the, on my new skis right so wow. after that that gave me like quite a big boost of confidence like okay i can compete with this guy and even yeah i lost maybe six seconds to the to the leader but that's so close like i can i can maybe next race i can i can be uh, on the top again right so and i think it, why i'm i'm thinking about back in that period and why i thought i should agree to this interview about factory team because i think it's really important to me in that period i think that's what actually made me who i am here and uh, that uh, there was a huge part in my career, and that's, I think, how I developed and how I grew. Like, if, I think if I stayed in Russia, maybe I wouldn't be who I am, like, or I, didn't achieve, I wouldn't achieve all I had because it was a quite different system. But because I, I was thrown, or, like, thrown, well, I moved here, and, and everything was from the scratch pretty much, and, and uh, it was challenge after challenge after challenge. I think that's what made me uh, an athlete that I, I, I was throughout my career because... Like, I, had, I didn't have coach. Like, coach back in Russia, I still co- co- communicating with him, but I pretty much had to figure out my own way of training, my own uh, way of peaking for the races and everything, you know. And, and that, yes, it took me a year or two, season or two, but at the end, like, it, it helped me on the long run to to start feeling my own body and feeling what, what kind of load I need, what kind of, what kind of intensity I need, what kind of training I need, and how much of that I need. And, and I think that's what was huge push for me as a, as an athlete and and factory team also like xc.com was quite it it was quite low level and uh, it was i like it was a team but i didn't feel like oh it's just like a pro team or something right it was just right. like a low key but when i moved to when i got to when i moved, get to got to us and and first met andy and like i got i, I was given like full team so it was like uh, i think it was made after like kind of bike teams, you know, uh, like uh, right. cycling teams. Yep. yep. Uh, kind of same, same kind of idea. And like I got, I got given full on gear, like bag and everything. And yep. for me, it was the first time I, I got that kind of, kind of um, attention and like all that stuff and being part of the team. And we had a best probably later a bit, but we had a wax, wax truck uh, first in the world, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Right, right. Like the, all of that kind of like kind of made me made me like oh my god this is so cool i i love it i feel like a person i feel like yeah feel like i'm i'm, I'm a, we, we're doing something here it's a cool team and and uh, we tr- something new nobody else has it you know i think that's what also made me improve so much in the in the next year or so when i when i started joining super and also of course the the level of super tour when we uh, when we uh, it's quite high much higher than canadian cups at that time because, like you said, sure. there's the NCAA and there were some, some German guys. I remember, like, uh, I think 2004, 2005, I remember I was competing, and there was a guy from Germany who went to Denver University, and, and he was the world junior champion. 
and uh, and because he just decided wow. to start skiing, he moved to to US, not moved to US, but went to school on a scholarship. So so that can tell you that level of the competition is really high. And like I was I was competing with him, and I, I was I was beating him and stuff. And so so that's I think that's what actually like luckily for me, but that's what made me uh, made me improve so much, you know, because I started and and of course another thing, another big <laughs> big uh, push for me was the it's a financial matter, right? Because I have a family, I have a son, and and my goal is to bring my wife and my son to Canada as well, and I need I need funds for that. So that was another motivator for me just to you know what. I don't care what's out there, but I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna gonna try win races, make money, and this was kind of not life and death, but it was kind of there is no other option, <laughs> right? So, okay, well, this is all of that combined. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say like, there's so much I can pull out from there, and I know, yeah, you know, limited with time, I want to ask you more things about the factory team. But I'm super fascinated by how you're looking back, saying how that shaped you. And I'm sure the idea of you having to figure out how to best prepare yourself as an athlete, you know, has really inspired and enabled you to be an incredibly effective coach. But we won't even go into that. I'm more curious, actually, about a comment you had kind of said about just your improvement in Canada. And maybe, you know, your career might have been different had it been in Russia. And I, I, I wanted you to kind of speak a little bit to that in terms of like, okay, you get this pair of awesome skis, now you're really fast. And kind of what that taught you about like, just opportunity in, in the sport of skiing for young people to come up through the pipeline. Like, do you think there is uh, a difference in that in other sports or even in other countries where like like simply opportunity and access to things can really change how you feel about how good you are or your chances for improvement like did that experience kind of mold and shape you in that way too where you're like man you know some people might get access to really good equipment and that's why we think they're really good but look at this diamond in the rough like he has talent he has other things and that was me you know like and then I got those fast skis and I kind of believed in myself and is that something that you have also sort of taken from this whole experience where where like you were really given an amazing opportunity but you also had to work really hard yes I think I'm I as a coach I'm, I'm a big believer in the natural progression of the of the athlete you know like that's why, like I, I gave some some speeches or some uh, at the conferences, my uh, like talking about my story and how I developed into this gear or athlete. Uh, like growing up in a small village, that was the first step, right? And there was it was some challenges. I never, I was always last there, you know. But that didn't bother me because I was so young and I, it, I didn't care. I just I just wanted to have fun, right? So and then slowly by by keeping in the sport and, and, and putting all the efforts and time and, and like I slowly started being one of the one of the best in the in the in the town, let's say, right, when I moved. Then 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 on the provincial level when I moved to university, that was another step up and I started representing my university and my province as well on the Russian on the on the Russian championship level kind of Russian cops and stuff. And and then like if I stayed there because Russia is so competitive, you have we have like hundreds of skiers could be could be like meddling on the World Cup. It's just the the politics of it, and like I'm not gonna get into details, but but yeah. it's just so competitive that it's really hard to to get out of it. But because I moved to Canada and I started winning races here, it kind of gave me another that push, another because I believe 
I believe that uh, confidence makes a huge difference, right? If yeah. I stayed in Russia, I don't think I would have had that confidence. When I moved here, and I, like I said, I joined Aktiva.com, and, I, and I, that was another confidence move. I started winning Canadian races. I moved to, to I went to a factory team, joined factory team, and started winning super tours. And, and, right. and that's another confidence boost because I'm like, and for me, it was easy because I felt like, and it was just naturally, like I got lucky. It was, I was blessed that it all lined up that way. You know, that was perfect kind of funnel like and, and, and path for me to to get that confidence and, and gradually improve and and after that came World Cups and Olympic Games, you know. So it was it's almost like a fairy tale, you know. Yeah. <laughs> those perfect stories. But that I got to leave and, and, and I looking back at it, I'm like, all these people who were with me and like Phil or Andy, there was a huge part of it. And then and then Canadian team and then Russian team and then Canadian team again. So that's kind of all shaped me and that's that's what helped me, I think, a lot in my career. So what were your years? Uh, uh, we'll, we'll transition now, I promise. So let's bounce back and, and talk a little bit about factory team. Give us some specifics first. Like uh, you, you sort of talked about how you were introduced to it, but what years were you on the factory team? And and then like explain again how you were introduced to Andy and what your view on the type of guy he was and the managerial leadership style was. Um. I don't remember exactly the year. I don't think it was 2003. I think it was the year after, because first year I probably raced with XC.com. Or maybe you already joined in 2004 season, maybe 2004 season, end of the 2004 season. So, like I said, okay. when I joined, it was like, oh, he was this really flashy. And if you look at the photos, like there was some yellow Subaru, we had Subaru yep. cars, we had that bus. I felt like a pro athlete right away at like 23 years old, right? Even though right. I didn't even dream of it. But like I said, it was I was just like, wow, this is so cool. This is such a high level. And, and we're traveling. Like, all I did, like, there were some questions of yours, but like, how did you, did you train together? Like, I know because I was here only in the winter in North America. In the summer, I was I was flying back to Russia and, and okay. training or like spending time with my family and, and my son and training in Russia. And for winter, I was flying back again and trying to, that, that was already like 2005, 2006. I'm trying to make money to, to do the same in the, in the next year to send some home and, and and yeah, support myself. But yeah, that was like quite a quite a nice experience. And the teammates around me, like Lars Bohr and and um, uh, um, Christina Stromberg, she was from 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 Sweden. Uh, that that international, we had some international guys on the team. And and but why I mentioned Christina and Lars because they were like I kind of clicked with them from the beginning. And we were good 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 friends and and all of that and we kind of mostly hang out together <laughs> and so we were just driving from one race to another great race and i remember those super cars was super cool especially coming from russia i never seen such a <laughs> such a great cars and we, i got to drive it and we drove through like through whole country through whole u.s from east to west sometimes like it was a couple of days of driving at the time and sometimes and drive and uh, clark i think he was uh, he was our wax technician he was really funny character and he was driving that uh, the watch track with, with us, so so all of that was kind of so surreal and so cool, and and uh, of course the success that I was having and winning money and like that all that like uh, to me that was my best years out of my ski career. You know, of course I can look at the Olympic Games, the World Cups, and everything, but I think those that time was 
so fun and so kind of easy going with the and and America too. It's first time from you being in the U.S. and and making so much money and kind of being successful. That kind of stuck to me. I think that was my best years. My and every time I speak to Andy or some guys when I meet from factory, you know, I'm like, dude, that was the best years. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't believe like that was so cool, you know. And, and same same there. And I got in kind of that that period. I think from 2003, four to like. Seven, eight. I think that was yep. the best years for those clubs. There was another club, like so. There was factory team. There was, I think, atomic team. There was Rosie team. You know, so it was kind of blooming. It was blowing up. Like it was really competitive. And then it kind of went downhill. Like there was some some financial problems or whatever. But but those was like I, I like I said, I'm just blessed to be in the right place in the right time and and getting into the gold ages of those teams, right? So. Yeah, that's that's um, what we heard from Andy, too. And I think, yeah, like, yeah, things were booming and it really changed the culture of like citizens races as well. Um, and you said, mm-hmm. you know, back in the summer, uh, you went to Russia. But yeah, when you come, came back for the winter, was your primary like uh, commitment, I guess, to your national team, the factory team, and then talk about, yeah, like you mentioned, you guys were drive to races, but what was the beginning of the season like in terms of charting out your race schedule and training plans? I mean, like in cycling, obviously you're, the team is together like every single day, right? They train together, they live together, they eat together. And I assume that's not really what it was like, but, um, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, well, did they just all, you know, fly in for Thursday through Sunday, every time there was a race or were they spending a lot more time together was it somewhere in between that and what cycling looked like like give us that inside look of how you how Mm -hmm. you planned out your year and then what like what the factory team culture was like for sure like when i like let's let's take the season 05 or 06 um so when i i flew back to 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 us and we're like with andy with all the first first camp we usually have a first race in in yellowstone Yep. Um, okay. um, you know where it is? Yep, yep. It's, uh, yeah. So, and so usually the first super tour is there. It's at uh, mid, mid-November maybe. And we usually get there maybe a week before to get some training done and, and all together. That, so that's the first time we kind of all get, got together before the, before the season started. And, and there we kind of pretty much just talk uh, because Andy was also in, running the marathon series in U.S. and there is a, quite a few marathons. And sometimes they align with the weekend of super tours. Okay. That's how it is. And I remember some of the, some of the races I was doing, like, um, like super tour usually was, Distance race and the sprint, right Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. And I remember once it was in the, in the Hollywood. It was once on Saturday it was a distance race, fifteen k, eight, I think. So I won that, and on the Sunday it was sprint, which I I never was a great sprinter, but and I I didn't I, I wouldn't be probably didn't have a great chance of winning it or being in the money, you know. So I remember like I raced Saturday, jumped in the car, drove like six hours to where the lopet was. And then on Sunday, I raised that lawpit, won that lawpit to make, make some money. <laughs> so, wow. So, so I had to, uh, and, and nobody else did it. Like all other guys, they weren't chasing that stuff. They weren't chasing you right. money, let's say, right? And that's why for them, for, for all of us, it was different a bit uh, goal through the season, right? Some, like, plan yeah. doing just NCAA, for example. Some on the Super Tour, some on the Lopez. There's the guys that focusing only on Lopez. I was doing everything. Whatever there is, whatever, every single okay. race, I was doing it. <laughs> I okay. was just like, whatever it, it takes kind of thing, you know? And, and 
on the, between the races, it also depended. Like, I was from Russia, so I didn't really have a home. I lived in the hotel for the whole six months. Right. Right. And but the guys who were locals, who were not that far away, they jump in the car and they go home for the for the weekdays or the week, depending sure. on the next race. Right. But Lars, he was from uh, uh, Alaska, and uh, Christina, she's from Sweden, like I said. So they also kind of were really far away. So that's why I think three of us, or maybe there was a couple more guys and one guy, uh, like we kind of all travel together and stay in the hotel. Majority of the time, if it, if it was like kind of bang, bang, bang every weekend. You know, if there was a bit more time, maybe Lars moved to Alaska and uh, Christina, I don't know what she did, maybe, I don't, I don't remember her flying to, to Sweden. But anyway, so, so that was, that's what I'm saying. Everyone had a different agenda, but kind of, <laughs> there was a bulk of guys that we tried to race pretty much everything. And Lopez were, some years, Lopez were more important for Andy, for our team to get represented there because there's more, way more people at the Lopez than on the, on the tour. Like, I mean, just the, just the number-wise, right? And some years were super tour, like, better, and, uh, yeah. But it kind of sounds like, you know, you all had individual goals and needs. And so you're going, yeah, trying to take every opportunity and whatever race you can make the most money at too. And there's other people maybe trying to like qualify for the U.S. Olympic team or whatever. But that explains a lot. It sounds like, you know, everyone had a really good time together, you know, no matter what. But was there a specific teammate for you? I guess you mentioned Lars. Is he, would he, would you consider him to be the favorite teammate to be around? Or were there some other guys that were, you know, memorable in, in other ways. I think we all were quite quite friendly and, and uh, like there was Chad Keys, I remember he was a good good friend of mine. But but I think Lars Lars and Christina, like Lars was my, my best friend from that time. And like if you call him like I remember he was really uh, like because when I moved like my name is Ivan or Ivan in Russian it's Ivan right and okay. in North American way in English like you, you can say Ivan so for me it doesn't matter it, to me like it's kind of stuck but I remember he was he was so good to me he's just like no tell me how how do you pronounce it in Russia so like I want to I want you uh, like I'm your friend and I want to I want to make it right, <laughs> right? right and I remember like so he was always saying Ivan even though, like I said, for me, it doesn't matter. But I remember when every time we'd like meet new people and, and people or people ask me, hey, Ivan, and he's just like, his name is Ivan. Like, get that. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember he was always standing up to me, you know. So that, that, that's why I think like we're really close and we, and we spend a lot of time together on the road, yeah. So what would you say were some of the challenges or hardships that you remember from being on the factory team? And, you know, Maybe maybe it was drama. It doesn't sound like there probably was much of that inter, interpersonal te- between teammates or whatever, but maybe there was some of that or whether it came down to finances. But just as a fly on the wall, like what did you see as any challenge or hardship maybe for the team as a whole? You know, whether it's, gosh, we got we to gotta find sponsors for next year and we're nervous about that or um, how do we balance different people's goals and decide what we're going to prioritize for this race? Were there ever times where athletes yeah. were like, Hey, I want to be the one who wins this race. Cause Andrew brought up how, like in some races, you know, you guys, you were working together, you know? So it, like in cycling and you, you see in the Tour de France the other year where, uh, the new young guy has a chance to win and they kind of had to have Chris Froome sort of, you know, take a back seat. But was there anything like that? Or what did you perceive as being any challenges or trouble? Like, if we're talking, like, hardships for me was that I was far away from my son and from my wife, right? So I remember okay. having those, like, back in the time, there was no cell phones, or at least I hadn't. And I remember there was 
Skype, I don't think just hasn't even started yet. So uh, I remember having a bunch of those, like a stack of those calling cards, buying them at every gas station, you know, and, and every day calling home from the pay phones. And like, I remember I memorized because there's like a first, it's a hundred number you have to call, then you enter your your PIN number, then you enter your number, you're going home, and, and, you know, so it was like 30 numbers or something in a row. I remember I was, because I was doing so often, it was just, like, I memorized it all. Like, so it's automatically just tick, 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 tick. And so that was the toughest time for me also. So it was the best time, but also toughest time because that the three years that, that I was away from my, my wife and my son, that, that was the, the, the hardest time for me because I missed them and, and I wanted to be with them, but like I knew this, I had to, I have to be here and I have to, this is, would be the next step because I was, uh, I, uh, I wanted to see them also in North America with, with me, right? So, but in team, team, when we were talking about the team, see, Andy was so great, like he never, I don't remember ever he saying like, oh, we're, we're struggling here or there. Everything was just great, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and he, he was a great manager and, uh, and like we always find that's how, and he, he had that feeling or sense he was such a good businessman and like he had the feeling of the, as a manager as well. That's how we, like Solomon came up before they were making just boots and bindings and then they came up with the skis, you know, and, and we were the first team to kind of take him, take him seriously and that was first year and we had Solomon guy actually, I think, flying from Europe and, and uh, brought skis and we tested them, you know, and, and then we switched from, from Fisher to Solomon because maybe it was financially better but that also gave us some some, um, uh, I don't know, just uh, being different from everybody else, you know, and that's how I got, I got signed up with Solomon, and that took me, like, through the whole of my career. I stayed with them, and, we, like, I helped develop the product and, and everything, and that was another also uh, thing that, that shaped me, also being somebody's, like, you know, company cared for me, and, and that, that, that uh, um, <clears throat> company made like great products and they see they took my feedback and that also gave me some confidence as, a, as an athlete and as a person like moving forward so so like i said there's i don't remember any any hardship beside that and, and like i said we had cars we had like andy took care of everything so it was a really really best time and, and like talking about cycling or like that team strategy in the races yeah i think we we're also one of the first teams or or nations or like we, we're using that little bit not as a cycling extent because it's different sport but right. we, we, we were like helping each other out and, and kind of because it's still individually and everyone wants to win or be the, the, on the podium or whatever but we were like like working together a bit and until some extent you know so but like like I said it was shaping like a after cycling team or those four clubs yeah and Andrew spoke kind of about his vision for the organization of the team and and spoke to just yeah it was really well run and we had sponsors we knew how to market products we were well financed the athletes were motivated they were paid well it just kind of seemed like you had everything in place and yeah. I, I want to you know ask you then you know do you agree that that really enhanced the ski community as a whole like having a factory team helped the citizen races and the citizen racers. And do you think that, that we really need to try somehow to return to some sort of setup where we have pro quote pro teams kind of getting organized? And if so, how could that happen? Well, it's a tough question. And I don't know it's for me, but of course I believe, I believe it was a huge, <clears throat> but back then it was something new. And like, I remember we traveled to Lopez with that, with a fancy truck that uh, Andy, I think it was a food truck 
uh, originally, and he actually stripped it all down and put some benches in there for ski walking and stuff like that, some vans, and, uh, and like, with, a, with decked out cars as well, we're coming to the races, so that brought a lot of attention, you know, and we had, I remember this also, the one of the first one we had, postcards like the Andy made like postcards for each athlete that we're giving away and signing right. and stuff that create hype so like I said I felt like a pro star <laughs> like during that even though cross country skiing in, in North America it's not a it's not a high end sport right like people don't like it's, it's not you barely see it on TV or if ever so it's not like track and field or cycling or swimming or whatever but like I think that that was a huge that's why other teams started coming up like Rosignol team or or um, uh, Atomic team back in the time you know and I remember it was a, like uh, other athletes saw that our team was so cool they wanted to get on it but I, I'm not sure I don't remember how Andy what was the selection process and how did you pick pick guys uh, athletes to the team but I remember it was like they were looking up to us they wanted to be part of our team and, and definitely I think it was a huge push and, and I, I, I think always it's at any time, it would be would be great to have that. Like like you said, like you provide the financial help. Like what athlete would, doesn't need it? Everyone needs it. You know, students, athletes. Like if if there's some support and like everything organized, of course, the result's going to be better, and you're going to attract only the best skiers in the country or athletes in the country. Yeah, he was the master marketer for sure. And it, and it, you're right, you guys were like rock stars. And it's just, it's interesting how we have the major four sports, baseball, basketball, football here. And they, they're just, I mean, you, they can't, there's so much money there and there's so much attention. And then like even in track and field, you know, which is for sure, like you said, bigger than cross country skiing, but they can't, they can't figure out a way to make like a pro track and field circuit really that works you know and it's just it is frustrating because it seems like the system that what had started with the factory team it's like man it's too bad they had that financial crisis in 08 that was really completely unrelated because i think that's kind of what took away the subaru sponsor and there was just like car market crashing housing market crashing it's like i kind of wonder where we'd be 12 years later if that hadn't happened because it just seemed like it was it was like a really good thing that was cut short for you know reasons that were kind of out of control but um you know do do you have any uh favorite memory or moment that's specifically tied to being on the factory team either as, as an athlete or a teammate I can't. I can't really think of anything. Like, I, oh, uh, well. I remember. Well, I had to. We had. We got to travel to like um, Aspen. I remember we had. There's a lot I think it was the. Uh, oh, Owl Creek. No, what, you did the Owl Creek chase. Owl I think. Creek. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I did Owl Creek. I remember we we stayed. Andy had somebody, or I, I'm not sure if he rented or he was somebody's some of his friends or somebody's new. So, so they landed. Their, uh, us, their house, our team. So I think it was like only three or four or five of us, like Lars, Christina, and maybe a couple more guys. But we got to stay in Aspen in a in huge house like that I've never seen before, you know, like that yeah. level. And that just really threw me away. Like, oh, my God. And, uh, of course, the, the race was perfect for me because it's, it's super high altitude. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think we skied up the Alpine area. It was super steep. And, and for me, the climber, it was like, oh, yeah, great. This is totally my, my game, right? So, so, and, like, all of this, like, I mean, and every time we're like, going to new places, of course, some, like, more low-key uh, towns, but, but, like, 
seeing places like Aspen that I saw on TV and like Dumb and Dumber, <laughs> and and like all those things kind of coming to reality. There was there was some special moments, of course, and I'm sure there was a few more. It just it just doesn't come to mind. But for some reason, I remember now that <laughs> the Aspen mentioned and and of course Owl Creek Chase, uh, really cool stuff. I did that race for the first time this year, actually. I mean, I've only lived in Colorado for three years, so the Owl Creek Chase, we drove down there, and I raced it, and um, that is one of the sweetest courses ever. It's like you said. I mean, the housing and everything, it's like you just can't even imagine living there. But yeah, that course climbs for, you know, the first, like, 12 miles, or not 12, 12 kilometers, yeah. and you're just going up and up and up, yeah. and then you just whip down through Snowmass, yeah. through Aspen. It's like the trail, the, yeah. the, it's got to be one of the most unique race courses ever. And, and I didn't know the course, Ooh. so I was kind of skiing blind, which made me terrified because I knew like what, what goes up must come down, you know, and like how crazy are these descents going to be. Um, but for did you ski that? Did you, do you have any other memories from that race in terms of like what the competition was like? Did you race against collegians or was it kind of you and Nathan Schultz kind of dueling it out or what was that race like? Yeah, it was like it was Lars and maybe Nathan Schultz as well. Yeah, I forgot I forgot him about him. And you know, because when the climbing starts, I just kept skiing and like everyone just disappeared behind me because yeah. back then it was no like I I didn't know that was my strength. Right, I was just I was just skiing races, but so I still figuring out myself what's my strength and and when I like like look back now like of course that 11 kilometer climb like anything nothing could be better for me because like sure. and i wanted by by a lot but you just not even like it was for me and i remember guys coming out like oh my god my legs they can feel my legs and i'm like oh i i think okay what are you talking about yeah. right? but no, it was, and it was a couple moments like that there was another one somewhere um in Sierra Mountains, somewhere in Northern California, I remember we also there was a race, uh, Lopet, and I, I I can't remember what it was. Maybe maybe that's the one the Golden Golden Rush called. And I remember we arrived uh, somewhere up in the mountains, and I, and we stayed also in the house. And I see, and there was not much snow, and I see houses. Each house has like a built kind of covered um, tunnel, kind of not the tunnel, but covered kind of all the way going to the driveway out of the the uh, out of the entrance. And I'm like, why would people have that? Like, what's the point of building, like, roof structure, like, this kind of all the way? They're like, oh, you will see. And then in the next two, three or four days, it snowed, like, almost two meters of snow. Like, it was, I've never wow. seen that in my life. So, so and, and that was the only way you could enter the house because it was roofed, that kind of tunnel. So it created that tunnel. Otherwise, it would be impossible because there was so much snow fell in that period of time. So this kind of thing, I've never seen that before, <laughs> right? That's so much snow in such a short period of time. But yeah, and like, like I said, every year was, was quite special. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast, part two with Ivan Bobikov. We'll be dropping next Thursday. You can listen to our shows on Spotify, Anchor, or you can just visit cedarskier.com.